Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mystique behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, I have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Maya Shankar, who is the Global Director of Behavioral Science at Google. Maya is also the host of the new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, where she talks to people who have navigated through major changes in their lives. Maya grew up playing the violin and was on track to become a professional violinist, studying at Juilliard, learning under an incredibly famous violinist and practicing more than ever. Yet one wrong finger movement and the ligaments in her hands snapped, leaving her unable to play the violin anymore. Maya needed to pivot quickly and chose to study cognitive science at Yale. This very competitive major required her to apply and be chosen out of a large field of applicants. After graduating, she went on to work with the White House under the Obama administration, founding the White House Behavioral Science Team. I am so excited to speak with Maya about switching career paths after a life-changing injury, her fearless approach to life, and what prompted her to start a new podcast. Maya, thank you for joining and welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. It's so nice to be here, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I was going through your bio and I started looking about all your experience with Juilliard and I wanted to talk to you about just the beginning, like just starting from the beginning as a young girl, you were an inspiring violinist with incredible, incredible talent. You got into Juilliard and learned under one of the most talented violinists of our generation but one hand injury, just one thing ended your entire violin career. What was it like to grow up constantly practicing an instrument to the point of injury? Yeah, I mean, it's an unusual story in that it wasn't from repetitive stress that I got the injury. Um, it was actually just one moment where I overstretched my finger on a, on a difficult note and I tore tendons in my hand in that one moment. And so, I mean, I wish I could say, Stephanie, that it was from overuse, but I didn't practice that hard. <laughs> I, wasn't, <laughs> I was like, I wasn't this is crazy. <laughs> I wasn't that good a, a kid when it came to practicing. But no, I mean, to your broader point, I was so in love with the violin, so in love with playing. When I was six years old, my mom went up to her attic and brought down my grandmother's violin that she had brought with her all the way from India when she immigrated to this country. And my mom had only meant to show me the instrument, but when she opened it up and I and I felt it, I, I just became enamored. And I asked for a pint-sized violin of my own. Um, and that began the speed 
journey to trying to become a professional violinist. So as you mentioned, when I was nine, I started studying at the Juilliard School of Music in New York. And when I was 13, uh, Itzhak Perlman asked me to be his private violin student, uh, which really gave me the vote of confidence that I needed that, oh, you know, you, you always feel insecurities, right? That I remember in that moment thinking, okay, well, I have... Perlman believes I can do this, so maybe I can. And then, you know, the sudden acute injury at age 15 just ended my dreams of becoming a concert violinist overnight. So let's go a little deeper into this because this is just absolutely fascinating. So you're playing, Maya. You're playing. What happens? Yeah, I was playing a Paganini Caprice. I remember the number is number 13. And I just had to... I overstretched my finger on on one note. And it was early in the morning, you know, it was cold. I was in, uh, it's a Perlman summer camp. And so probably wasn't as warmed up as I should be, but I just went for it. And I heard a popping sound in my hand. And I was the totally um, recalcitrant kid that was unwilling to accept her hand injury. I kept playing through pain for months. I kept performing, you know, I wanted the quick fix. And Ultimately, like I said, doctors told me, you know, sorry, kid, but reality is going to catch up to you at some point, And this violin thing is no longer something you're going to be able to do. And there's this interesting concept in cognitive science called identity foreclosure, Stephanie. And it refers to the idea that we can become very fixed in our sense of selves in adolescence, and it can prevent us from exploring other avenues, other identities, other roles that we can play in, in this lifetime. And I certainly fell prey to that. You know, I had first and foremost been a violinist. And so when it was abruptly taken away from me, I didn't really know how to think about who I was, you know, like, who am I without the violin? My body had grown in a way that met the ergonomics of the instrument. Like to this day, my right shoulder is a little higher than my left because of all the years I spent doing this. And my spine is slightly curved because, you know, it's like, Literally, you can see it in my body, you know, the passion for the instrument. And so uh, it was really hard for me to try to figure out what paths could come next. But I do think having such a formative experience with loss of some kind, like a passion loss, taught me to see my identity as far more malleable than I would have otherwise. So talk to me about the emotion. So this goes on. And like you said, you didn't just set it down and be like, okay, that's it for me. You really went through the whole process of, no, I'm doing this. And thanks for your expertise, <laughs> not doing it. I couldn't have said it better, Stephanie. Like I was clinging to this instrument. I was kicking and screaming, being like, let me play, let me play. And like I said, daily practicing through pain and just kind of trying to convince myself that this wasn't a big deal and it wasn't an issue. And, and finally, you know, a doctor just had to sit down and say, you can't do this anymore. And I was absolutely devastated so heartbroken and at a loss for what came next. And I remember the summer before college, I was supposed to be on tour in China with my musical classmates. And instead I was at home in Connecticut helping my parents clean their basement. So, you know, equally cool situation. Yeah, absolutely. I Highlight. Upon, <laughs> yeah, Highlight. And I, I stumbled upon a book on the science of how the mind works. And I, I, you know, similar to opening the violin that day, I didn't expect to fall in love with anything. I was just kind of like perusing and, and trying to pass the time. And I started to read a few chapters and 
I felt a similar feeling. I was completely in awe of this organ. I was so in awe of our mind's capabilities that I had totally taken for granted up until this point in time. It's so funny. I think in everyday life, we can all be so hard on ourselves. You know, oh, I wish I was this way. I wish I was that way. I wish my personality. Actually, just by virtue of living, we're all crushing it every single day. Our minds are exactly. We're winning. In, we're winning because yes, we're, we're here. Winning. <laughs> we're winning because our minds are engaging in the most complex remarkable processing that you can imagine. And the more you learn about the human mind, honestly, the more it can fill you with awe. And so in that moment, I realized, oh, this might be it. This might be the new thing that hopefully can capture me. And it led to my getting a PhD in cognitive science, you know, studying how the mind works, and then ultimately getting a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience, where I looked at the mind from a, a slightly more technical angle. And I can, that same passion that I felt when I was 17 opening that book, I feel today, um, which is again, just total admiration of, of our own minds. So before we go into that, because I have so many questions about that and you are so gracious and so kind, I want to go back to whenever the injury happened. And just like you said, you had planned on traveling for the summer. You had traveled. This was, Maya, not only did your body kind of envelop this instrument, but also everything. So your social setting and your family support and your instrument and the practice and just the time, everything. When this happened, everything stopped. Like you said, you're cleaning your basement now, okay? What does your social setting look like? Where are your friends? Or like, how are you feeling about reconnecting with people outside of the musical world? Yeah, so uh, so one quick clarification is that it was the summer before college. So there was going to be a social reset of sorts. But absolutely, I mean, I think... I mean, I have to give credit to my parents because even though I was on the the fast track to trying to become a violinist, they were absolutely intent on us kids having well-rounded lives. And, you know, I'm the youngest of four kids and we all played musical instruments, but we also did a bunch of other things. Like I played soccer growing up and I was on the cross country team in high school and I was on like the trivia team for a while. And I so you felt, were really very, very well-rounded. It wasn't, your parents were not a thousand percent violin and this is it. You were doing yeah, so many I felt other like things. I was trying to do the a thousand percent violin thing. And, yeah. and my, <laughs> my mom in particular was always like, you know, you got to put eggs in a few baskets here. Um, also, you know, growing up in India, she had to choose her focus very early on. And so she became a physics major. She was in the sciences and she really wanted us to have a, a liberal arts education. So I remember even when I was trying to do this violin thing, she was always like, yeah, but can you go to like <laughs> not music college, please? Uh, and just make sure that you're, you're, you know, you're taking classes on like Chinese literature and on religion and, and whatnot. I mean, she just was so eager for us to, to be well-rounded. But you know, on the one hand, sure, that's great. I was doing these other activities, but nothing felt like the violin, right? Nothing captivated me in the same way. I wasn't willing to go into a practice room and, and study or practice anything else as much as I was willing to practice the violin. So it definitely felt like a singular loss in that way. So you open up this book and you fall in love, okay? And then you quickly get into college. So you're in college and you're kind of going through this whole psychology of, of the new Maya, really. Were you, were you a thousand percent in? Were you nervous? Had you already thought, okay, this is the career I'm going to go down? Like, where was your thought process around that? Oh my gosh, I was so nervous and I had so much imposter syndrome. I remember thinking, the only reason I got into undergrad in the first place is because of my violin career. And now I can't even do the one damn thing that got me into this place, right? Um, so I would say that I had cautious optimism, right? I was, I knew that I was passionate about it, but I also was worried 
that maybe I didn't have what it took to, to make it as a cognitive scientist. Remember, like back in the day with the violin, I knew I loved it, but I needed that vote of confidence from Itzhak Perlman to tell me you can do this thing, Maya. And I also felt like I needed that in my cognitive science life. And I, I still remember to this day, my undergrad was one of the few places that had a cognitive science major. It was fairly new. And I remember reading in the course enrollment book that it was an application only major. And I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, not only do I feel all the imposter syndrome feelings around getting admission to the school, but now you're asking me to get into a program that's admissions only. So I still remember I, I learned coming into undergrad that there was a, a monkey cognition lab. And that monkey cognition lab was going to allow me to be able to run experiments of my own making on our non-human primate relatives, right? And so I was so excited about this because I thought to myself, or sorry, let me retake that just to make it more accurate. Um, and so I was going to be able to run experiments where I was generating the hypothesis on non-human primates. And that was so exciting, right? I would never, I never thought, oh, in my undergrad, I would be able to actually run research studies. And so I show up to this class and the room is overflowing. So many people want in on the monkey class, of course, right? On the monkey class. Yeah, the monkey lab. So many people want the monkey. (laughs) We all want to be in the monkey lab. And I'm the lowly freshman in the back of the room that's trying to compete with all these upperclassmen to get a spot in the class. And I can just feel hope dwindling in that moment. Like, oh, this is not going to work out. This is not going to happen. And so... I end up selling my soul basically on this application form. I'm like uh, the, the professor, Laurie Santos, who's actually the host of the Happiness Lab and a dear friend of mine and has been a mentor to me all these years. She was my freshman year advisor. I, I write right on this form, you know, I know I'm just a freshman, but you know, you can have my unborn baby and I will go for the 6 a.m. shift in New Haven on Saturday mornings to go to the monkey lab. And basically I will be your dedicated student for the next four years if you say yes to me. For whatever reason, Lori takes a chance on me and accepts me into her monkey lab. And that really changes the course of my life because it leads me to one, again, get that vote of confidence from someone I really admire who's willing to take a chance on me. And two, to really get my feet wet on what it means to study the mind, what it means to actually put on scientist hat and come up with novel research questions and actually experience, you know, the highs and lows of being a scientist, you know, finding out sometimes that you're right about something. Sometimes you find out that there's nothing interesting in the area you're studying, but it really gave me a taste of what that life could be like. So, you said something in an interview that stood out to me. You were telling the story of you and your mom going to Juilliard and asking a random violinist to make an introduction for you. And you said it was your mom's fearlessness that opened the door for you to get into Juilliard. In what other ways was your mom so fearless? Because I'm picking up a lot of this going into you as it starts permeating (laughs) through your life. Yeah, I think my mom's general philosophy, um, and maybe this is the immigrant mentality, is you're not always going to get stuff handed to you on a silver platter. Sometimes you just need to make the damn platter yourself. And so when it came to Juilliard, as you mentioned, you know, I had these huge dreams when I was a young kid, but my parents were not well-versed in the classical music scene. They didn't have any connections to that world. They didn't know how to get me in front of the right teachers and in front of the right school. And, you know, my dad's a physics professor. My mom helps immigrants get green cards to study in this country. Like music was not in their wheelhouse. And so we were walking by the building one day and my mom said, why don't we just go in? 
Like, what do you mean, just go in? That's nuts. We're not, we can't just walk in unannounced, uninvited. And she said, Oh, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I'm visualizing, well, I can think of a few things like security guards gently escorting us out of the premises and never allowing us back in, but okay. So I, I think this is in like 1995 or something. So we go in and my mom strikes up a conversation with a student and her mom in the elevator and, and very gently asks, like, oh, would you mind just introducing my daughter, Maya, to your violin teacher when you're done with your lesson? And she was so kind. She was so nice and generous and agreed. And I auditioned for this teacher on the spot. He ended up accepting me into a summer boot camp. And he prepped me that whole summer for my Juilliard audition, which I ultimately, you know, and very fortunately was accepted into. And so I think what that lesson taught me also is that people are going to be really kind and generous along the way if you're just willing to ask. And and I've seen that play out many times over the course of my adult life. First, beginning when, you know, I was a postdoc sitting in my neuroscience lab and it occurred to me that I didn't want to do this anymore because it wasn't quite the right social environment for me. Like I was in this windowless laboratory for my third or fourth hour scanning people's brains, being like, I don't know anything about these people. And yet I'm looking at like their amygdala. This just doesn't work for me. And yet, and then I had to call Lori and say, you know, Lori Santos again and say, so, um, this thing that I've been doing for like many years that I was, you know, a trend role model, you know, you're my role model. I was hoping to have your future. I kind of don't think this is right for anymore for me anymore. What do I do? And she told me about this incredible work that was happening in the White House at the time where they were marrying behavioral science and public policy. And I ended up sending a cold email to a former Obama official and, you know, basically pitching him on the idea of, you know, my getting connected with the White House and having a job made for me. And Again, one of those moments where similar to the Juilliard elevator, he writes back right away and says, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm happy to connect you. You know, here's President Obama's science advisor. Here's his deputy advisor's email address. Let, let them know I sent you. And then many years later, I'm eager to help Mayor, at the time, Mayor Pete, uh, run for, for president. And I sent him a cold email. <laughs> I'm like, hey, uh, do you think I can help on your debate prep team? And he writes back and says, yes. And it just showed me time and time again, um, you know, if you put yourself out there, they, they say it's a cliche at this point. Oh, the worst thing that can happen is no. But but also the best thing that can happen is yes. You know, and I think sometimes we forget that, especially because people are far more open than you might think they might be uh, to, to what you have to offer, to the skill sets that you have uh, that they may not be familiar with or aware of. So... I'm going to go off script for a second because I, I have four kids as well. The oldest one is 26. Oh, wow. The youngest one is 11. <laughs> right. That's what I Good say Good job, too. you. You deserve the award. <laughs> Whatever the award is, uh, you get it. <laughs> well, I'll let you interview them first and then we'll see what kind of award I should have. <laughs> I love that. I get frustrated sometimes with our new interns and I get frustrated sometimes with our new employees and I get frustrated sometimes with the kids because I'm like, I don't know where this fear base came from. For me, it's not like a normal or like a healthy fear where you're like more like you're like cautious, but you're still going to go ahead and do it. It's it's Maya. It's fear. Like your body takes you over. I remember one time my daughter got like an 89.9725438 or something. And I said, just go talk to your teacher. Very, very caring teacher. Go talk to her and say, hey, I, I blew it on one of those questions. Can I do? And I mean, you would have thought that I was asking her to give up her first child. Like she was like, you cannot do that. And it was very, very real. And it was very fear-based. So so you, when I read that about the White House, and then the answer was yes, it was yes. I think of two things. I think of the first thing is, what was the tenor and tonality of your email? That's the very first thing I think of. And then second of all, 
do you teach this tenacity and this glow about you that you have to people that might not have the same feeling that you do? Yeah. So one, um, I still relate to your daughter. I have a lot of your daughter in me, which I hope is is hopefully an inspiring message for listeners because you can be a blend of a lot of confidence and insecurities alike and, and still find opportunities for yourself. So my email to that former Obama advisor, Cass Sunstein, uh, was ripe with insecurities. It was seeping at the seams. I think I tried to almost self-sabotage my chances by saying in the email, I put in parentheses, I mean, I, I should pull this email up to refresh it, but I do remember saying, I know I'm not cool enough to work with the likes of Obama, but if there's a state or local government opportunity, please let me know because I'd love uh, to work in, in a local setting. As if to say, like, don't worry, we both know I'm not actually capable of doing the big thing that I'm asking for. Like, don't worry, I know that. I know that. You don't have to humble me. I'm humbled, right? And I think it's a very classic thing that, that so many of us do. We get in our own ways. And I was lucky because in that moment, Cass decided to ignore the insecurity and just wrote back saying, no, here's the Obama White House peoples. That's the path we're going to take together. And I'm so grateful for that. And what did you do when you got it? Like when you get this back, where are you? And tell me what happened. Okay, I'll like, tell you, you exactly where I was because it's yeah. a moment I'll never forget. I had been swimming at the YMCA and I was biking home and there was a red light. So I was stopped on like the sidewalk, just waiting for it to turn. And I looked up, <laughs> looked at my phone and was like, holy crap, he wrote back. I wasn't even expecting a response, right? Uh, let alone a response so quickly. And I nearly fell off my bike. Uh, the only person who's like fully parked at a red light who nearly falls off her bike. Um, and I, and I put it back in my pocket. I was like, road safety, road safety. You can't look at this anymore. Just figure it out when you go home. But I, I was so, I was so taken by the fact that it seemed to me like he saw a potential in me that I hadn't myself seen and that he knew, okay, sure, you haven't had formal public policy experience. However, it seems like you got guts. <laughs> it seems like you have some chutzpah. And that those are actually the traits that make a person thrive at the White House. The knowledge learning, the part about public policy and how it merges with behavioral science, like I'm confident you can learn that stuff. The harder part is actually having the guts to send me this email. And like, that's going to be part of the recipe for success. And he was so right about that. If that was in fact his interpretation, because when I got to the White House and I'm trying to build momentum to create this team and I don't have a budget and I don't have a mandate that allows me to build a team. Well, what do I have to do? I have to do the metaphorical cold email like a gajillion times. I have to knock on every door. I have to strike up conversation with any person who's willing to take a conversation with me at all levels of government. I need to like go into the Oval Office with President Obama himself and say, yes, of course, this thing that I've been making is a team with a real name and has a future. You know, like I, I was thrown into all of these environments. And so I feel like that email experience just really taught me as a woman of color, there's enough room in this world for other people to get in my way. You, right. I shouldn't you be the one getting in my it. way. I don't Ex need to do it myself. Exactly. And that was such a good lesson for me to learn. It took me years though to learn that, you know? So I, I think that's so incredibly important because I'm first generation here on both sides. And, and where's your family I, from? My mom is from Portugal, from the Azores Islands, and my dad's from the Middle East. So I think it's so important, the imposter syndrome and the insecurities that you talk about and just really getting through that because honestly, Maya, he's so right. He can teach you the public policy or he can teach you the service or the product or whatever it is. He can't teach you knocking on those doors and those, again, gajillion emails that you're going to sell and to have the tenacity and the grit to do that. That was all you. 
And, and I should mention too, you know, I hired a bunch of people when I was building the White House team and the, the things that differentiated the highest performers from the lower performers was not their educational background. It was not their academic standing. It was their fearlessness, honestly, their willingness to go out there and find entrepreneurial ways of getting things done. Having a creative, nimble mindset. That was the thing that differentiated our best performers. I love that. I wanted to share one other thing, though, with respect to your daughter's comment, because I do think that, and this relates to this idea of a of a CV or a resume being a highlights reel, right? It is so easy to not realize how many no's or non-responses I've gotten to. My denominator is really high. <laughs> I take a lot of chances. I send a lot of cold emails and notes. If you put yourself out there enough, no one rejection is going to feel as bad. And so I've always felt like, similar even to my approach at the White House, right? Trying to build this team. I was trying to get government agencies to partner with me. And I was getting told no left and right. But because my denominator was so high, because I was having like hundreds of these conversations, which of course, at times I want to just like bang my head against the wall, but hundreds of these conversations. When you're rejected 80 times, that's a lot. But then when that 81st time someone tells you yes, right? Oh, okay. I'm feeling a little bit more enthusiastic now about my prospects. And then, and then you realize, oh, well, actually 20 times I got a yes. And and so now all of a sudden compared, it's just remember that the rejection set can actually be quite large as long as you diversify your, your, your assets, so to speak. You know, you're putting, you're putting potential opportunities in so many places that it just doesn't sting as much to be given, to be given those no's. And I think, Maya, I think you literally hit it on on the head. We were talking about this the other day with LinkedIn. So we were talking about, you know, like we were just talking about highlight reels for your upward trajectory and all the amazing things that you've done. But people don't see what the sabbatical meant, okay? People don't see all the times that you applied and said no, just because you're responsible and you stayed at your job for however long. People don't see that the, the time you didn't get the promotion or the time that you were feeling really unhappy or you were feeling really down and you stuck it out. They just see the next great job, the next great job. The ne- they don't really see all of the turmoil. And that's one of the things that I try and talk to the younger ones in our company, because this is the third company that I founded that's gone global. But also too, you know, with the younger kids that are coming out and really want to make an impact. They're like, I just want to make an impact. And impact means so many things to so many different people. So I just find it, I think I'm so happy that you expanded on that. I'm really happy that you said, hey, look, this is normal. Throwing it 80 times and getting, you know, 20 okay or yes is a very, very normal thing. It's not a bad close, if you will. Yes, I completely, that's, that's exactly right. And again, if you only put yourself out there one time, then yes, I agree. It's bruising when you get that one rejection. But if you do it enough, you do build some insulation, right? I do feel like I have a lot thicker skin than I, than I used to. Absolutely. Did you face any uncertainty or like any anxiety about what the next steps would be when you hit what seemed to be these career dead ends? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. I think at every turn, you feel a little bit more confident because you know that you've done the career shift before, but it doesn't really make the practical realities of it any harder because, you know, I thought, oh, I definitely have found my thing now. It's going to be being a cognitive science professor. And then I get this postdoc in cognitive neuroscience and I'm thinking, oh, 
darn, if I don't become a professor, what does a person with this background become? And then suddenly I get this dream White House job, right, where I'm a practitioner and I'm actually applying behavioral science to policy. And I'm thinking, well, this is the dream. And then I'm waiting for a Hillary administration for eight years. And then that doesn't happen, as we all know. And so at every turn, you can feel disoriented. But I have felt a sense of peace emerge, which is really a discovery I had when it came to the violin and and what how you can build a through line throughout your life, even when there's a lot of twists and turns. And what I learned from my experience with the violin is that I think I was wrong about what I actually loved about it. it. Like if you had asked me as a kid, Maya, what do you love about the violin? I would have said, oh, I love the way that it feels. And I love the way that it sounds. And I loved, I love, you know, pressing my fingers down and then this beautiful thing emerges. Those were true. But I actually think the thing that I really loved about the violin was the idea that it allowed me to forge a deep emotional connection with people who I'd never met before. So as a young kid, right, you're going on stage with a bunch of strangers in the audience. Within moments, you're making them feel something they've never felt before. And that is so intoxicating, right, to make people feel things. Like, what greater gift can you be given than that? And it was that human connection that drove me, that the fascination with how it is that we even get people to feel things that in part ignited my passion for cognitive science and becoming a scientist and certainly motivated me to create my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, where it's all about having these super raw, vulnerable, intimate conversations with people who've navigated extraordinary change. And and you have license to go into a room with people, you know, in my, in the case of, you know, my first season, like Tiffany Haddish and Hillary Clinton and Casey Musgraves and say, Hey, I know we just met, but what's the hardest moment of your life? Or tell me about, you know, I'm sure you feel this all the time, Stephanie. It's like, so at the end of the day, yes, I've done such different things, but there is a through line there, which is a deep desire to understand and forge human connection. That is the constant thread across my career. I love that so much because so much of what you say just completely resonates with me as a human. And so when you say these things, I'm kind of, I was always the one in, 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 in very high level, like executive positions, like vice presidencies and presidencies throughout Silicon Valley. Okay. And, and I always asked the kind of the taboo question, like the provocative question, the, the one that didn't follow the sales script. But I, I genuinely meant it out of interest. I really was deeply wanting to connect. So I remember going into like a big wigs office and, and not seeing any, any family pictures. Like I remember walking in and I would just walk in and I'd be like, oh, I mean, beautiful art, amazing office, incredible view. But then I just noticed that every time I call late, they're there. Every time I call, they're always down for for a late night or early, you know, early dinner or like an early breakfast. And so I would, I would just say, you know, hey, I don't want to keep you. Do you have a family to get home to? And then that would lead to going through a divorce or unfortunately I don't have my kids tonight. And that connection was really honestly and truly part of the sale. They shared with me so deeply and they shared with me so intimately. They knew I wouldn't go away after I made the sale because we were all, we had that connection, that deeper connection. And so when you talk about that and you say, hey, I have this platform now where they know they're not going to be going up doing high five. We're going to get into some really deep stuff, but it's awesome. There's nothing better. I I completely agree. I mean, it is the greatest... I was talking about this with my husband the other day, like creating a slight change of plans and getting to have these kinds of interviews with people is 
probably the greatest gift I've ever been given in my adult life. It feels like the equivalent gift of, of being given the violin as a child in terms of the emotional rush that I feel from the experience. And yeah, and, and I would just urge your listeners who are going through an unwanted change or a big change, because that's, again, the premise of what my whole podcast is about. So I've learned so much about navigating change from both the science, but also from my guests' personal stories, you know, is that when it comes to any given pursuit, try to focus on the features of the that pursuit that make you tick. Rather than focusing, in my case, for example, on the instrument, on the violin, which had the ability to be taken away from me, focus on what it is about the violin that you loved. And then try to find those traits in other things, in other passions or pursuits that can exist in the world. And I think that puts you on sturdier ground when it comes to continuing to find things that you love because you might have the very thing taken away from you. You know, you're an athlete, you get an injury, you're a professor, you don't get tenure, whatever it is, like all people face a stumbling block. But if you can, you know, kind of dig in and say, oh, what were the things that I loved? It can really help you move on to that next step. Well, again, I think you absolutely nailed it. It's that common thread. It's that one thread that kind of carries you through because I know for me, Maya, I know that when I would go, oh gosh, am I am I just changing? Am I just kind of like here, 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 here? I really wanted to feel settled and I wanted to feel grounded foundationally. And until I got to what you said, the features, and it was human connection. It was a deep desire to connect. It was a deep desire to help and to inspire and to impact. And I, I just necessarily couldn't figure out what it was. And and that was the whole reason, just like you, that was the whole reason why I started the podcast. I didn't want to add to the noise, but I did want to have a larger reach on impacting and inspiring others. Completely. Under- I love that so much. Yeah, yeah. So well said. So how can behavioral science enhance or affect workplaces? Look, I think behavioral science is the study of how and why we make decisions as well as how we develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world. So it is essentially an umbrella category that captures the human condition, right? How it is that we move about in this world. And so what you can learn from behavioral science is that sometimes we're influenced by all sorts of factors that we're not even consciously aware of, right? All these uh, surprising factors that influence our day-to-day decisions that if we could just become aware of might lead us towards, you know, better outcomes or or better decision-making frameworks. So one thing I love about the field is that I'm constantly learning new and surprising things about our own minds. And, you know, certainly in my work in public policy, when you understand what some of those factors are, you can design around them, right? You can say, oh, I know that as humans, we have this bias or that bias or that bias. And so therefore, I will design a system to accommodate for that, to reflect our best understanding of behavior. So do you find yourself overthinking just like simple things because you're doing deep dives into the science behind certain actions or decisions? So do you over overanalyze or <laughs> analysis paralysis? Like, how are you uh, on that? It's a good question. I mean, in, in some ways, maybe the reverse because I've learned from behavioral science how bad uh, analysis paralysis is and how having choice overload can backfire. But I, it's such an interesting thing because I get asked this sort of question a lot. And I love the question because it's like, oh, as a behavioral scientist, what is it like to live? Can you live like a normal person? In many ways, you can be aware of all these biases, and yet you're still going to have an extraordinarily human experience because it is it is not enough to know that I'm going to want to choose the short-term reward over the long-term outcome. It, you know, 
and choose the long-term outcome just because I'm aware of this? Of course not. Like I'm a fallible human like everyone else. And so it's so interesting that despite knowing about all these nudges that can improve my life, despite knowing how to motivate myself to exercise or eat healthily or make better decisions, I still fall prey to so many of these deep-seated biases, irresistibly so. There's, there's like, in the same way that, Stephanie, it's like, you know, I used to study visual perception in college, but you look at a visual illusion, right? And you're like, yes, this one line is definitely longer than the other line. And all of a sudden it's revealed to you, they're actually the same length, but you can't help but see them as being different lines, right? And so there's some element of impenetrability, which is like, you can be very consciously aware that there are all these factors out there, but your human nature is still going to kick in and these hardwired heuristics that we use to shortcuts we use to navigate the world will still kick in in full force. (laughs) So I find myself living basically like everyone else. You are so incredibly fascinating and you're so gracious. I almost know, and I hate to do this, but I almost know the answer to my next question, but I want to ask you, like, I really want to feel this from you. Do you ever feel like and, and superhero might be too big of a word because you you are obviously not, you know, arrogant. You're very, very personable. You're so kind. But do you ever feel like whenever you go into a room, do people ever, are they off put by you because they know that you have the power or the education to be able to immediately change their mind by by your training and by your education? I don't think so. And I think the reason is that for all of behavioral sciences, superpowers, if you will, it has a lot of limitations. It's not a silver bullet. And if anything, I've learned in studying the mind that it's very humbling. It is extremely, extremely hard to get someone to change their mind about anything. You can try to get them to modify their behavior so that they can reach their existing long-term goals, but it is exceedingly hard to get people to change their minds, even on empirical matters. I mean, that is probably one of the toughest challenges facing cognitive scientists, psychologists, what have you right now. And so I feel limited by the tools of of this field. It's just not as powerful as you might think. And I think in many ways, that's a testament to the fact that, again, we have a very complex cognitive architecture. And also, you know, we, we develop our attitudes and beliefs on the, about the world based on so many deeply entrenched factors. Like, what our social group is and what, where our tribal allegiance aligns. And, you know, those are sticky, right? It's not like I can go into a room and convince someone to be pro-vaccine when they're anti-vaccine just by pointing at facts. Because maybe for them, getting a vaccine or wearing a mask totally threatens their membership with their social group, right? And so I think number one, like, no, just because it's very limited. Though, though of course, there might be misconceptions about just how powerful <laughs> these, these behavioral science tools are. But I think the second thing is, I do feel a profound amount of humility as I go about my life, because if anything, being a scientist teaches you that knowledge is hard to come by. And uh, we should always be questioning our assumptions about the world, because so many times research has proven us wrong about how it is that our natures are constituted. And so, it actually leads you to cultivate a, a, a mindset of humility. Um, and, I, and I hope to bring that, you know, to the conversations that I have, like a deep curiosity and then also a, a willingness always to be wrong <laughs> about what it is that you believe. Maya, what's the biggest obstacle that you've been able to turn into an opportunity? I think what I accomplished at the White House probably was the greatest win for me because the amount of red tape and bureaucracy in the government, I mean... Oh my God, I had so many demoralizing days where I was just told no, or a project I'd worked on for eight months suddenly was kaput because of factors that were completely outside of my control. 
that job required more grit than I even knew that I had, um, more perseverance than I even knew that I had. And it was a wonderful boot camp because to this day, you know, I, I try not to take no for an answer. I try to always find creative workarounds, try to find ways to, to make things happen. Um, and I'm not sure I would have developed that quite that same level of that spirit <laughs> had it not been for my experience in the White House. The grit and tenacity really got Absolutely. developed. Oh my gosh. Let's go back to the podcast briefly. What is the biggest purpose for this podcast? You know, the podcast came from a very personal place, which is in 2020, I was feeling really overwhelmed by the change that was happening around us as a result of the pandemic, as a result of the racial injustice, and because of events in my personal life, which is, you know, my husband and I had a miscarriage via surrogacy, and uh, we were absolutely heartbroken. And I didn't have answers, and I wanted to find meaning in, in a big change that had happened in my life that felt so out of our control. And so I went searching for answers. And that's how this podcast came to be, which is I realized I'm certainly not alone in feeling overwhelmed by change. You know, that is just a part of the human condition. And, I, and I'm certain that there are answers and insights and wisdom in other people's stories. So if I can find people who have navigated extraordinary change in their lives and mine their stories for some answers that don't happen to lie in a cognitive science textbook, right? You can't, in the middle of grieving, go to page 23 and like, there's your answer, right? I thought, let, let's just hear people's remarkable stories and, and see what we can learn from their stories. And my hope for listeners is that they will leave every episode with every guest thinking just a bit differently about how to navigate change in their own lives. I certainly have, whether it was talking with a 33-year-old health nut who gets a stage four cancer diagnosis and has to get his leg amputated and, and do 18 administrations of chemotherapy, or a guy named Morgan who had surgery to align his body with his true gender identity and felt initially so liberated from his female body because he he was now male, but then felt imprisoned once again when he became aware of what it was like to be a black man in society and how, how he would be treated as a black man in society. So he so poignantly says that he felt, quote, caged again, you know, to talking with Hillary Clinton about her decision to change her last name and take on her husband's name, given all the pressures she was facing in, 19, in the 1970s as a woman in Arkansas. There are just so many fascinating tales from people who've gone through so many different types of change. And I really do feel like I'm, I personally am a better person for it. And I hope listeners feel the same way. That's amazing. Who's been your most inspiring guest thus far? I spoke with a woman who lost her husband during quarantine and was grieving his loss, and in part grieved his loss by honoring boxes of his writings and journals that he had left behind for her. And what she found in those boxes turned a pretty straightforward grief into a very complicated grief. And I don't want to share more because I want, you know, listeners to have that, to hear her full story in her own words. It's actually going to be the first episode of season one. She showed incredible vulnerability in that story, and it actually inspired me to turn the mics around and have my producer interview me about my own story of change. Um, because in August of this year, my husband and I endured a second miscarriage with our surrogate of identical twin girls, which was absolutely devastating. And I was at a total loss of, of how to think about this, like a sec for this to happen again uh, with a person that we loved and adored and who was so generous and kind. It was just so devastating. And I was 
so nervous about sharing such a personal story with the world. I never had planned to, Stephanie. And then I then realized that to your question about the ethos of my show, this is what the show is all about. It's about processing out loud and healing and, and trying to find answers in messy scenarios. And it was so therapeutic for me to do that episode. And so, yeah, I guess Susan, the the guest I had on, on the first episode inspired me to share my own story. And I'm so grateful to her for that. Maya, thank you so much for coming on and making this such an impactful show. I'm so excited to share your story. Where can our listeners find you? <laughs> yeah, so uh, they can find A Slight Change of Plans wherever they find their podcasts. Uh, and I have um, an Instagram handle at Dr. Maya Shankar. So S-H-A-N-K-A-R. <laughs> and they can follow the show and I give some sneak peeks of, of upcoming episodes on there. That's incredible. Thank you again for sharing time with us today. Thank you so much, Stephanie. So much fun to talk with you. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com. 